Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having a special Black August commentary courtesy of political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal, which you can check out at prisonradio.org. Also going to be touching on the passage, the House passage, I should say, of the trillion dollar infrastructure bill and what that's going to mean. Also going to be having an on the ground report, perhaps more specifically an on the boat report from the wildfires in Greece. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. For the past 10 years or so on this day, I get drawn into a trip down memory lane, a journey through the nostalgia of my younger years that were filled with music and, oddly, mobilization. I came of age in the era of Ronald Reagan, graduating high school in 1985 amid the ravages of the crack crisis and capitulating into a long journey of political education, maturity, and activism. And a great deal of that journey involved music. And this day always gets me to thinking of some of that music that helped open my eyes to the political forces behind the growing inequality and despair that I saw around me because today is the day hip-hop was born. Now, it's true that at a party in 1973, DJ Cool Herc did the groundbreaking thing of using two turntables to create what's called a break beat that became the standard, the template, the foundation for hip-hop beats to come. And there's a whole technical musical artist explanation for what a break beat is, but if you love hip-hop, you already know what it is, and you're probably jamming to one right now. So I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about how there was so much political reality involved in the founding of the beautiful art form called hip-hop that we love so much. The parties that Cool Herc, Jamaican-born Clive Campbell, would DJ were his sister's idea, Cindy Campbell. She threw these neighborhood parties to earn extra money for school clothes for the new school term. Why is this political? Well, because who else has to earn extra money for school clothes but poor kids? And Herc spent his early years in Kingston, Jamaica, the home of neighborhood parties called dance halls and the DJs toasting or what we would call emceeing during the songs to the crowd's delight if they were good. And if you know Jamaican music at all, you know that it's fun and energetic, but much of it is also incredibly political. Why? Because Jamaica is a country full of black people made and kept poor and oppressed by British colonialism and then later Western imperialism. So 18-year-old DJ Cool Herc created the enduring soundtrack for the domestic expression of those same political realities on August 11, 1973 at a neighborhood party on Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx Boogie Down, New York to raise money for his sister's school clothes the radical poetry of The Last Poets and The Watts Prophets and the radical jazz lyrics of Gil Scott Heron were transferred to hip-hop and songs like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's The Message, described by the Los Angeles Times when it was released as, quote, a revolutionary seven-minute record that is brilliantly compact, chronicling of the tension and despair of ghetto life that rips at the innocence of the American dream. 
Curtis Blow's Party Time album released in 1980 during the Reagan era and the deepening economic crisis contained two party songs, but the other three raised issues of widening economic inequality, crushing black poverty, and international politics. Of course, the 80s was the era of the war on drugs that was really a war on poor and black and brown people, and hip-hop was the medium to deliver that message more clearly than any other genre. Obviously, Public Enemy was the vanguard. They were joined in their overtly political hip-hop surrounding other issues, though, by groups like Stetsastonic with their anti-apartheid anthem, Africa, or Chill Rob G's classic, Court is Now in Session, and Intelligent Hoodlum, a.k.a. Tragedy Gaddafi's political rap, Arrest the President. Hip-hop artists constantly addressed the internal struggles in the same communities they were elevating as targets of political repression, with KRS-One spearheading the effort to bring the top East Coast MCs of the day on the track's self-destruction in support of the Stop the Violence movement that featured everyone from Public Enemy to Dougie Fresh to Heavy D, MC Light, and fellow members of Boogie Down Productions, or otherwise known as BDP. In their aftermath, even as gangster rap took over the commercial genre of hip-hop and rap and the radio waves, new generations of political lyricists carried the art further, with folks like Blackstar, Arrested Development, The Roots, and Dead Prez, my personal favorite, Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, Black Sheep, all addressing violence, racism, and bringing Afrocentrism into their impeccable rhymes and wordplay over those infectious beats. And they've given rise to a new generation of political hip-hop artists and rappers today who express with rhyme and rhythm the hell we still live through right now. But I won't do what a lot of folks who talk about hip-hop and rap do. I won't leave out Go-Go, because Go-Go is, of course, an offspring of hip-hop. It's a uniquely D.C. offspring, but they are related, especially when we look at the history of one of the seminal go-go bands in D.C., the Junkyard Band, and an obscure, to anyone who don't know them, song that they released in 1986 on Def Jam Records, the same label that LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, who I never liked, sorry, and Public Enemy were on. The Junkyard Band was a collective of 10 young Brothers from the Berry Farm Housing Projects, which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore, here in Washington, D.C. Some were as young as nine years old at the time that they wrote the word. Now, these kids living in the poorest area of the city penned these words. Hey, miss, haven't you heard? The trench is getting deeper for you and your honey. Reagan gave the Pentagon the food stamp money. The trench is getting deeper for you and your buddy. Reagan gave the Pentagon the Farmer Brown money. See, at the time, Reagan was plowing an estimated $110 billion into the Strategic Defense Initiative, the SDI, or otherwise known as Star Wars. At the same time, Reagan's trickle-down economics were not working for the lower classes, but the rich were getting, obviously and obscenely, richer. Lower-income working families were hit by cuts, with Reagan's policy focusing particularly on non-working families, the poor. And an estimated $25 billion was cut from programs affecting the poor. 
the military and the corporations got rich, and the people got nothing. And a bunch of kids in the hood in D.C. saw this back in 1985. I wonder where today's hip-hop and rap artists are in talking about these same economic and political realities that we are still facing today. Because, hey, y'all, didn't you hear? Biden did the same with the infrastructure bill. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. We're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say, and you know, Jackie, I really appreciated you uh, breaking down sort of the history and roots of hip-hop on today, which is hip-hop's birthday, because, you know, I often think about what hip-hop is at its root. And to me, hip-hop is an Afro-diasporic cultural expression that has become a worldwide phenomenon. People are rapping all over the world. Hip-hop culture, as we know it, even the aspects of it that aren't as popular in the United States anymore, like breakdancing, graffiti, and things like this are popular all over the earth. And it's certainly a part of big business. But you see, it only makes sense for hip-hop to be as popular as it is because pop culture in America has always been black culture, right? I mean... The first uh, indigenous music of what became the United States is jazz, right? And I mean, when you look at even from the food standpoint, you know, like, like the popularity of soul food and things like this. I mean, you go to almost any city, you have all these, um, they call them Southern cuisine restaurants. But what is this? I mean, this is a, a food from uh, the black American experience. And so when we talk about the impact of hip hop and the slang and all these sorts of things, I remember last year uh, when people started getting vaccinated, they say, oh, it's going to be a hot vac summer. You know what I mean? A a takeoff on the hot girl summer of uh, a Houston rapper, Meg the Stallion. And I have to say, it's even interesting to me how niche hip hop cultures can be internationalized as well. And I'm thinking specifically that in Japan, anyone that knows me knows I'm a huge fan of a Texas rap, my favorite rappers, uh, Pimp C, rest in peace. And in Japan, there is like a community of people who like love this Texas rap. And so you have rappers like Bun B and I think Lil Kiki and uh, L.E.S., Ellie Dollar, that is, have gone over there. And, you know, they're all about the slab culture, which is like the car culture of Houston and the look and the sound. And it really is incredible. And I'm also thinking about how Hip-hop is used as a political weapon, right? And and you definitely touched on that in your remarks here uh, a moment ago, certainly in the messaging of a lot of those artists and those groups that you named. But I mean, it it can also be used on the flip side to parrot reactionary messages. I mean, there are pro-Trump rappers you know, I forget the names of the one cats who had a, a rap song that was fairly popular amongst 
uh, Trump supporters and, you know, they would, you know, bring him to concerts and they had him here in D.C. at one point. Or we can look at um, this this most recent situation with Cuba and how, you know, in terms of the face of the counter revolution in Cuba in this epic in time, it's not like a, a white Miami Cuban rapper like a, a Pitbull or someone like that. They've got these black Cuban rappers that are doing it, right? That's where we get this uh, Patria Evita song, which is a very purposeful inversion of the revolutionary slogan, Patria O Morte, right? And so that's very purposeful. And it's not a mistake. It's not um, a coincidence is, is what I mean to say, nor is it the first time that the United States has done this in Cuba or even around the world. The United States government regularly seizes upon uh, uh, ethnic minorities or, or otherwise uh, groups such as that in different countries where it wants to carry out regime change to try to justify its imperialist agenda. And this is shining through clear as day in this Cuba issue. They're trying to basically make it seem, and, and, the, and the mainstream media has helped out with this as well, that tries to make it seem that these regime change efforts happening in Cuba are really sort of the Cuban version of like a Black Lives Matter movement. Like it's a black rebellion against a racist communist government. I've even seen um, a, a cartoon about uh, it, it was a black woman with like her head wrapped up and she's wearing all white and she's like sort of standing on Cuba and she's got like a revolutionary that's supposed to represent like Fidel or some of the Cuban Communist Party. You know, they're wearing green. They got the hat and all that. And she's holding them like she's about to throw him off of the island. You know what I mean? So all of this sort of counter-revolutionary uh, uh, imagery, we know the history about, you know, uh, radio and television, Marti, you know, the, the CIA fronts uh, pumping out this uh, counter-revolutionary information. And so it's just wild that, you know, even imperialism has used hip hop towards its own end. And it makes me think about something I, I hear a lot of people say these days, and I think it's true, is that, you know, it's important for there to be a cultural aspect to struggle. You know what I mean? And um, the, the American capitalist state has always been aware of this. I mean, it sprung up whole organizations that were specifically designed to beat back the influence of the Soviet Union or of socialism or of communism. And it, it was anything to try to keep people, especially young people, from having these radical ideas. And I'm thinking specifically of groups like, you know, like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, you know, things like this. And, and I mean, we know that the roots of the of this counter-revolutionary Cuban hip hop, I mean, it was a part of, you know, the same apparatus that uh, overthrew Milosevic. You know what I mean? And so it's it's you know, the, the imperialism is excruciatingly consistent in the way that it carries things through. And so when you combine this counter-revolutionary uh, messaging with an already existing 62-year blockade on top of the new sanctions from Joe Biden and from Donald Trump. I mean, it's obviously just an all-out assault on 
the Cuban Revolution that's being carried out by attacking the Cuban people themselves. And the Cuban people are acutely aware of this. They're not strangers to this process because for, you know, there's a couple of generations where it's all they've ever known. You know what I mean? And so the fact that the government still has as much support as it does, the fact that the revolution has uh, as much support as it does, I think is a is a testament uh, uh, to that. And I, I think also I want to point out that the real root of hip hop in Cuba is uh, Nahanda Abio Doom, mm-hmm. who who lived there in uh, exile uh, along with uh, Asada Shakur, though she doesn't get uh, discussed quite as much. And recently, if you check out our Twitter page at BAM Necessary, I recently put up that um, interview we did with Kamal Franklin, I believe it was a year or so ago, about Nahanda Abio Doom, not long after she had died. And so here you, she took an Afro-diasporic cultural expression from here in the United States where it had its roots in the poor working black and Latin communities of New York City and then took it and placed it in a revolutionary context in Cuba. And even that came full circle because we had these black August hip hop concerts that were here that didn't just have revolutionary acts. You know, they would have a uh, David Banner and, and people like that. This is pre woke David Banner, <laughs> the David Banner that I like, frankly, the one that I prefer. I'm just going to keep it real if we're talking about music, but even still. And so to continue to see that there's still a sort of political vibrancy to hip hop and not just in the content where if we look at people like No Name, mm-hmm. a rapper from Chicago, you know what I mean? Who 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 is a rapper and who came into organizing and uh, who is constantly espousing radical politics and good anti-imperialist positions, has her own book club where she, where she can uh, uh, promote all these sorts of things. I mean, encouraging people to read radical books. I mean, it's, it's really cool, particularly in this anti-intellectual time that we're in where people are just like, oh, just Google it as if Google is some neutral, apolitical arbiter of information or people just, you know, act like there's something classist about reading. It's the weirdest thing. People act like, you know, the working class doesn't read. In reality, they just think that poor working people are stupid. That's really what they're saying. That's really what they're saying. They don't think that they can understand these like, you know, uh, these deep concepts. Well, working people all over this globe across the course of time have understood and studied these concepts. And so for people who consider themselves leftists or progressives or revolutionaries to have that little faith in them, I think does not bode well. And so in discussing hip hop, Jackie, there's a lot to get into. I think the positive as well as the negative, but I think the, the, the ongoing potential for it to be used as a political education tool, I think, is quite encouraging. Yeah, I mean, and I, I can't help but think about, you know, when you talked about uh, the the hijacking of hip hop in Cuba against the Cuban revolution. I can't help but think about the way political leaders, the so-called emerging political leaders in places like Haiti and Uganda came out of the entertainment industry and they were reactionary pro-imperialist leaders like, well, you know, the, the the jury is still out maybe on Bobby Wine in Uganda, but there are serious questions 
about some of his, you know, because he supported Juan Guaido, said, you know, hey, I, I want to meet with you. Uh, but certainly, what was his name? Martelli in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Michelle uh, Martelli. M- yeah. Michelle Martelli. He was uh, uh, an, an entertainer. So the the idea that that hip hop in particular is political and and was always political. And even with the party songs, it will always be political. It's because it came from not just the streets, you understand, but a particularly uh, a unique socioeconomic condition that didn't just exist in this country, but it, it existed in other countries. And I do love how the history of hip hop through the story of Cool Herc in particular ties that that colonialism from Britain and the imperialism yep. from, you know, Jamaica and from the islands uh, into our history. So I think it, it, it shows us once again that this idea that we Africans in the United States have no connection to Africa historically on every level. That's just the most ridiculous thing in the world, because yeah. even the music we love to listen to has roots in the African experience all over the diaspora. So if we understand that the capitalists in the record industry in this country destroyed and 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 put a lot of effort mm-hmm. and money into destroying the political conscious hip hop and driving it underground and off the airwaves so that the masses could not listen to it and be radicalized toward those ideas of, you know, reading radical books and socialism and that kind of thing. What makes us think they aren't doing the exact same thing everywhere else in the world that people are struggling against capitalism and imperialism? Absolutely. And of course, you know, an art form can only be political when it emerges from the experience of poor working and oppressed people. And uh, we mentioned uh, Black August a moment ago when we actually want to kick off the show today with a special Black August segment. This is a commentary from political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal titled Of Jailhouse Lawyers, which is important. This is a contribution from Mumia many uh, don't talk about in terms of this uh, discipline of jailhouse lawyers. But we're going to go ahead and hear from him and then come right back. Of jailhouse lawyers. To be a jailhouse lawyer is to be, above all, a prisoner. And as such, among the most despised of men and women in the nation. Jailhouse lawyer was similarly a term of derision, a joke, a mockery. Until, that is, they began to win. Early in this era of mass incarceration, around the 80s, a guy named Hiram filed suit against the prison at Huntington, Pennsylvania, because of their practice of giving guys yard that literally lasted as long as it took to smoke a cigarette, or about five to seven minutes long. Hiram read old statutes in dusty law books and filed suit in state court and won an order that forced officials to give at least an hour a day, five days a week, in the yard. It was a revelation. And the change from six minutes every other day to 60 minutes a day could not be more dramatic. 
Hiram wasn't a joke. He represented the rare power of intelligence against state repression. I've studied and written about jailhouse lawyers for years. Few have been as impressive as Richard Mayberry of Pennsylvania. He has spent decades in prison, yes, but he has also cut decades off of sentences, his and his clients. Once, after a series of verbal jousts with a state court judge, he was sentenced to 11 and a half to 22 years for contempt of court. Mayberry launched an appeal that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. In its 1971 opinion, Mayberry versus Pennsylvania, the court, in reversing Mayberry's conviction, issued a new rule forbidding courts from sentencing defendants who had performed contempt before them. New, presumably unbiased judges had to be appointed to avoid the taint of judicial bias. Mayberry detests the term jailhouse lawyer and rarely uses it. He uses the law by necessity to get closer to home, to push back against state repression, and sometimes to make positive change. There's another kind of jailhouse lawyer that rarely is referenced by that term because he skips by the jailhouse. I refer here to the late Dr. Huey P. Newton, one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California in 1966. Newton, before he helped form the party, was a deep student of the law, not to practice it as a lawyer, but to break it and get away with it. He writes the following in his first book, Revolutionary Suicide, published in 1973. I first studied law to become a better burglar, figuring I might get busted at any time and wanting to be ready when it happened. I bought some books on criminal law and burglary and felonies, and looked up things, everything possible. I tried to find out what kind of evidence they needed, what things were actually considered violations of the law, what the loopholes were, and what you could do to avoid being charged of at all. They had a law for everything. I studied the California Penal Code and books like California Criminal Evidence and California Criminal Law by Frick and Alarcon, concentrating on those areas that were somewhat vague. The California Penal Code says that any law which is vague to the ordinary citizen, 
the average reasonable man who lives in California and who is exposed to the state's rules, regulations, and culture doesn't qualify as a statute. Dr. Newton added, My studying helped because every time I got arrested, I was released with no charges. Huey P. Newton from the Huey P. Newton Reader, page 25. To be sure, Dr. Newton describes how he avoided the jailhouse, but he utilized the law as a true jailhouse lawyer would for liberation. In this era of mass incarceration, it is important to know that there are not enough lawyers in the country to help the millions who are held in the iron houses we call prison. There are not enough lawyers to try the cases of the accused, not to mention the cost of hiring a lawyer. Prisons are the preserves of the poor, and most prisoners can't begin to afford real legal help. So, in the bleakest of circumstances, most people are forced to turn to a jailhouse lawyer and hope, just hope, that they won't get burned. Or, do as Huey did, self-study, to look for cracks in the walls of repression. Now, I don't think it's fair to ask you to read what Huey read way back then, but you should read the Jailhouse Lawyer Handbook, which shows you how to prepare your legal papers, even providing forms so that you can do it the right way. Keep on struggling. From Imprisoned Nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. And again, that was political prison Mumia Abu Jamal with a commentary titled Of Jailhouse Lawyers. We'll be right back, right here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. We're now happy to be joined by David Schultz, professor of political science at Hamline University. Professor Schultz, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, and thank you to the audience. Absolutely. And Professor Schultz, the Senate has passed the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, something that's been getting a lot of coverage precisely because of the bipartisan uh, nature of its construction. That's a word we keep hearing a lot when talking about the bill is bipartisanship, bipartisanship. And some are counting this as a real victory for President Joe Biden, though it seems that the cost of bipartisanship is really the scaling back of a lot of 
the funding that was going to go to some much needed things here in the United States. Also, the Republicans uh, sort of steadfastly rejecting uh, any new taxes, particularly on corporations and the rich. But, uh, Professor, I'm generally curious, you know, how you're seeing uh, the the substance of this bill and uh, the whole sort of political uh, maneuvering that that went into the way it was put together. Well, I think you make a really good point here is that when Biden originally proposed this, this was going to be approximately $2 trillion. Um, It was going to cover a far more expansive conception of of infrastructure um, than this does. This is sort of more narrowly tailored, classic roads, bridges, highways like that. And also, it was going to put... um, Um, a greater emphasis upon asking corporations and upon the rich to be able to pay for for the infrastructure um, uh, improvements that are occurred. So that was the original plan, and that wasn't that wasn't that bad of a bill at that point. Um, but in order to get it passed, he had to first deal with the fact that um, that Joe Manchin and some members of his own party weren't going to go along with it. They were insisting that somehow it would be, be bipartisan. Plus, they were dealing with the fact that they weren't going to get any Republican votes. What they wound up with here is a bill that still spends maybe about a trillion dollars on infrastructure. Um, it doesn't have the progressive taxes that it had before. And it may look like that at the end of the day that the funding for it comes out of other programs or it becomes regressive. And so on one level, depending on how you define bipartisan, it's sort of bipartisan, but in the sense of of does it have the reach um, or redistributive qualities that one had hoped it originally would have had that people like AOC wanted, it certainly doesn't. And remember, the Senate has passed this. Um, the House still has not agreed to it yet, and there's serious dispute whether um, there's enough votes in the House of Representatives to support it, especially among Democrats. Yeah, and that is, I think, the key to this whole discussion about this infrastructure bill, because what we always talk about, uh, you know, policy and whether it passes or not in terms of blaming either the Republicans for not supporting Democratic policies or Democrats for not supporting Republican policies. But in this case, Professor, it is the Democrats in the House who are the ones who are threatening the passage of even this pared down bill. So it wasn't even an issue of the Republicans saying, no, we're not going to support all of these efforts to fund these social programs and things. It was Democrats like uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who was supposed uh-huh. to be the progressive darling from Arizona, I thought. That's that's at least that's right. what people called her. They're the ones who were largely responsible for uh, gutting the more progressive people focused elements from this bill. And and I, I have to ask, what does this mean for of course, it means something, you know, terrible if it doesn't, this bill doesn't get passed at all. Sure. Right. But what does the fact that these particular Democratic politicians wouldn't even vote for these policies for the people in their states? What what kind of message does this send to the working people in West Virginia and Arizona who were counting on something? from uh-huh. their elected representatives, but they literally got nothing. They're, they're getting nothing so far. 
No, you're absolutely right. And, and normally what you would have expected in a deal like this, what should have happened is that Biden should have gone to um, Manchin and others and said, what do you want for your state? What do you want for your district to vote for this? Um, and that would have been normal, smart politics. You know, and my joke would have been, you know, had Manchin played his cards right, he could have probably gotten what? You know, sh- you know, um, you know, what indoor outdoor carpeting for the entire state of West Virginia. And I'm, and I'm being a little humorous, but you know what I'm getting at here. Instead, he basically um, sold out working class interests in the state even though he's claiming that he support, he's supporting him. And the same thing is happening in Arizona because there's, there's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of money that's going to be in this bill. Um, and because he was unwilling, because the two senators were unwilling to basically support it and really were supporting what more I'm going to call Republican types of interests, um, not only do they not get very much out of it, um, but it really expresses or shows um, sort of a signal why the Democrats have been losing the working class for the last few years. They're not enacting policies that are to the working class's economic benefit or interest. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, I think that's the case. And I'm also wondering, Professor, about the calculus of the Republicans, because I believe 18 of them uh, voted for this House bill. And it to me, the, the thing that first comes to mind is that they may be sort of teeing up to, you know, support this piece so that they can, you know, maybe launch a, uh, a stronger attack on, on the rest of Biden's agenda, perhaps later on down the line. But this is just, you know, I think a conjecture on my part. And certainly, you know, we, we can't know what's going on in their minds for yeah. sure. But I'm just wondering how you see um, the Republicans move on this and, and what you think it may portend. Okay, I think the Republicans are getting the best of both worlds. So what happens here is that the the Republicans um, in those 18 districts, you know, 18 states, get to say at the next election, I brought back jobs, I brought back money. They get to be able to make that argument, and so they get to stand in front of the ribbon-cutting ceremonies, you know, when they put a new highway or fix a bridge, et cetera, et cetera. Smart politics there. But then the Republican Party collectively can now um, um, either – um, condemn, you know, quote, wasteful government spending or come out against this or consolidate their their efforts against the next big bill. And the next big bill is the one which is the huge $3 trillion plus reconciliation bill, which really does actually do pretty significant things in terms of um, spending taxes and so forth like that. And so the the Republicans get it. They, they, they get it in terms of I get goodies from my district and I still have the ability to criticize and come out against the bills that really do make a redistributive difference in our society. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned a moment ago about sort of this years long running issue of the Democrats just, you know, tossing aside uh, uh, policies that really uh, help the masses of poor and working people in this country. And the passing of this infrastructure bill has elicited a, a response from the Progressive Caucus, who, you know, published a letter to uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, uh, basically saying that, you know, they won't support a, a bipartisan bill if um, without a bold reconciliation bill that really addresses issues like the climate crisis and, you know, other infrastructure needs that really uh, uh, speak to the needs of working people and working families. And so, I mean, what that leads me to question, you know, Professor, and, and this is something that I think of a lot is that 
Why are the Democrats always so eager to be bipartisan with a uh, Republican Party that never has been really interested in that in a real way? You know, it always uh, seems to be engaged. Republicans always seem to engage bipartisanship in the sense to really just really, you know, bleed or uh, tear away any sort of a real progressive measure that would, you know, be impactful for people on top of being sure to protect corporate interests. Sure. And so, you know, from your perspective, I mean, what what is sort of the thinking there? Why is that bipartisanship seeming so uh, important? I mean, and we could even go back to uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail when he had this sort of open arm right. policy with Republicans and they appeared at, you know, his convention and all those sorts of things. I mean, what what do you think is really motivating that that sort of uh, strategy for them? Well, something connects Biden to Obama back to Bill Clinton. And it's the fact that what they're still t- it's follow the money. They're still taking a lot of money from Wall Street and from corporate interests and from and from rich people. And at the end of the day, that's the convergence between some of the Republican interests and some of the Democratic interests. Um, they're both ch- taking the same money. They're chasing the same dollars. And therefore, th- these are these are people that is the corporations and rich Wall Street people um, that are not supporting what significant redistributive policies. They're not supporting policies for expansion of health care or raising the minimum wage or or guaranteed you know national health care. And I so. so so that so that that becomes, I think, the core answer that you really want to give. Now, my backup answer, uh, a little bit tongue in cheek here, is to say that um, that's the million dollar question that you're asking: why are why are they not doing it? Uh, um, bec- and their failure to do that for for forty years has really resulted in what is, is the loss of working class in America. But really, the core answer, the core answer, really is that the Democratic Party is less of a working class party and more of a corporatist party. In the same way that the um, that the Republican Party is, um, there's a great line. I remember I can't remember where I read it once several years ago, where somebody said, "There's a class warfare going on in America, but only one side is fighting," and that's absolutely true. Um, the, um, the rich and the corporations are fully armed, and they've got the two parties on their side. Working class America um, is not armed, and it doesn't have um, a party on its side. And, you know, I think a part of the reason for that, Professor Schultz, is the way that the ruling class and the political class are very slick in the way they present these arguments and the way they present this information, even in talking about this infrastructure bill, because I, I think this is. A very important thing to understand, this money that they are trying to get past, this $1.2 trillion, they always present it as just this one lump sum, right? And people think, well, that's going to be in the next fiscal year or the next year or whatever it is. People think that that's going to be $1.2 trillion spent all at one time. But that's not true, is it? What is the actual, what are the details about the spending for this bill. And and you did mention that the bill is structured so that the it has to be paid for. Why does that matter in, in terms of how this money is spent and when it's going to be spent? 
Boy, there's a lot of questions there. Okay, the simple answer is that we're looking at $1.2 trillion being spent over several years um, in which, the, um, and again, it's going to cover you know, a lot of traditional projects such as, again, roads, bridges, highways. I think the, all that's good. We need to fix those road, bridges, and highways. It's going to cover um, also something such as broadband expansion, which in many areas of the country we need to do that. Um, but, but, but it's right. It's a it's a depreciation of that money out over several years. It's going to be paid for some of it with just debt, just outside debt. We're going to basically borrow to pay for it. Um, some of the money is going to come from it, or it's going to come from other programs. But to a large extent, we're going to push most of the financing issues off to um, paying for it over to future generations, um, or eventually out of. Of some existing programs, um, even though they're not saying it right now, you know that's going to happen in the future. That the Republicans are now starting to make noise yet again about the debt ceiling, about the national debt, uh, and they've done that before. And what that always winds up happening is that the Democrats wind up giving in and start to support cuts in social programs um, to address those issues. So. That's sort of the contour of where I see the debate and where I see this all flowing out, let's say, over the next several years um, in terms of how it's all going to play itself out. Yeah, I mean, that definitely does seem to be the trend. And for me, Professor, I mean, it's hard not to feel like there's going to be some uh, political consequence for the Democrats in continuing down this road, uh, particularly given the uh, intense moment that we're in here in the United States with uh, several crises converging all at once. Of course, the pandemic, we've touched on uh, climate change. There's, you know, the the eviction moratorium has been expended to October 3rd, which is really only a, a few weeks. And so with all these different social issues facing the American people and they, they're looking to, you know, the Democratic Party, which has the White House and is in power here and that they were told that they, you know, must support in order to uh, get rid of Donald Trump and in general don't seem to be receiving much for their investment of a vote. And so I kind of feel like we may be reaching a point where, you know, that 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 one sided class war that you were speaking to earlier very well may may be ramping up and uh, there may be sort of a real sort of class conflagration in a way that the Democrats may not be prepared for amongst uh, the part of its electorate that it's sort of taken advantage of for so long. I think you're right. I think I think there's an opportunity here for Democrats to do something. Now, how many um, working class voters are ready to move back to the Democrats um, is a matter of debate. And there's a lot of number questions are here. But on the other hand, there does seem to be quite a few people who moved from Donald Trump over to Joe Biden, willing to give him a chance to give him an opportunity. But he has to deliver. He has to deliver something, um, I'm going to say, in the next few months, because we're talking about the 2022 election cycle, in order to convince them to say that, guess what? My life is better now because I voted for Democrats as opposed to voting for Republicans. And part of why the Democrats lost the working class over the last 40 years, they supported a series of neoliberal, um, neoconservative policies um, that led to what? The greatest gap between the rich and poor in American history. The working class said, well, heck, I voted for Democrats. My life is no better than it was now. In fact, it's worse. Let me give the Republicans a try. They're giving the Democrats, some of them at least working class, are giving the Democrats a chance again. Um, they have to deliver the Democrats. Otherwise, what? 
Odds are they're going to lose their House majority um, in November 2022. And that 50-50 balance in the Senate, which is so precarious, they could very well lose that also, much in the same way that Obama blew his huge majorities in the House and Senate um, in 2010 by what? By constantly putting off the working class. What I described what Obama did back in 09 and 010, uh, going up to the election, uh, I call it the wait-wait strategy. When working class and labor said to him, you promised you would help us, Obama was like, wait, wait, I got more important things to do. When it came to the homeowners um, losing their homes because of the recession, he said, wait, wait, I have to bail out the banks first. That's exactly the same road in danger that the Democrats are in right now. Yeah. And uh, lastly, I wanted to ask your opinion about the uh, upcoming uh, reconciliation bill, which yeah. I mean, some feel may be a part of uh, a real hope to get in some of the things that folks are hoping to see in the uh, infrastructure bill. I, I mean, what do you think about that piece sort of in general and, and how do you think it may fare? Well, if, if it passes the way it's being proposed right now, it's probably the most significant redistributive bill we've seen since um, since the 1960s. But I say because it, it has child care, it has expansion of health insurance, it has a lot of things that progressives want in it. But remember, Joe Manchin, um, at the end of the day, I would be really surprised um, uh, if Joe Manchin um, and some of those conservative-leading Democrats are willing to vote in favor of it. Um, and and this is a case where um, it, it might force the same thing that happened with the infrastructure bill. It goes from being a lofty idea to a bipartisan bill that fails to accomplish what it was supposed to do. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Professor Schultz, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the ongoing wildfires in Greece. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kiriakou, Sputnik News correspondent. John, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And John, Greece uh, has entered its second week in fighting the wildfires that are really impacting the country. Some really striking images we've seen of uh, people evacuating Greece with, you know, red fires sort of blazing in the background. And I believe you yourself are uh, on a boat uh, off the coast of uh, Mykonos. Tell us what's happening uh, with Greece. What was this uh, process like uh, of having to leave the country? And how do you see things uh, evolving from this point? These are the worst fires ever recorded in Greece, ever in history. Uh, they began about a day after I got here. I got here a week ago uh, Sunday, and a week ago Monday, the fires broke out. Now there are reportedly at least 27 separate fires, but the most serious ones are on the island of Evia, which is only about 45 minutes north and east of Athens, and in the northern Athens suburbs. Um, you know, when we when we were in Athens last week, 
there was this 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 pall of of just black smoke that settled above the city. Um, you'd go out onto your balcony, and there would be flecks of ash all over your clothes. It really is that bad. And to make matters worse, um, Evia is very rugged territory. This is where the worst of the fires happens to be. Very tough, you know, steep mountains, uh, pine forests, and the whole place is just devastated. People have lost thousands of animals. Um, they said that uh, they said that thousands had been tens of thousands now have been evacuated, mostly by boat, because there's really no other way off the island except a, a small bridge that connects it to the mainland. But the fires are so fierce, they've had to enlist the, the help of, of, you know, whatever local just happens to have a boat to get people out of the villages. And then you multiply that by by two dozen. It's just devastating. Yeah, in in a televised address to uh, the nation last Monday, I think Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis said that firefighters had battled a total of I cannot believe this number, John, five hundred eighty six blazes over the past week. Just over the past Crazy. week. And he apologized for failings in the state's response to the crisis, saying, you know, that blame would be assigned where necessary. Now I remember. Uh, that Greece had, you know, serious problems with uh, the, the the economic collapse in their financial and banking sector. Uh, there was some political upheaval. Is that connected to the poor response that the Greek authorities have given to this horrible and and honestly, I think we can say unprecedented. But was it really mm-hmm. something that we couldn't? predict was going to happen because climate change and fossil fuels, we've been talking about that for decades, John. What, is, is there a political austerity politics component to the, the, the poor response from the Greek government? The Greek people seem to think so. And, you know, there's, there's an element here, too, that, that most people aren't talking about, and that is the role that corruption plays uh, in these fires. Certainly, uh, you've got to look at climate change. All last week, there were unprecedented uh, temperatures. Uh, when we when we arrived in Greece, it was 103, 104. It went to 108 uh, one day, 109 the next, the highest temperature ever recorded in Greece. So it's hot, it's dry, and it's an area prone to fires. But with that said, and I think this is a more direct answer to your question, Jackie, Um, Greece has this crazy law that developers are not allowed to clear forest land for development. But if forest land burns, they can develop the burned area. And so it it just invites arsonists to go into the forests and set these fires. And it seems to happen every summer. This year, it's out of control. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty wild. And I mean, I'm curious, John, you know, what is the sentiment sort of generally from the Greek people that you felt not only on uh, the vessel that you're you know, currently occupying, but just sort of in general? I mean, the sentiment about how things are faring uh, in the country, both with the wildfires and in terms of the government itself. That's a good question, uh, Sean. At first, it was it was one of of concern and sadness. And now it's one of anger. Uh, Kiriakos Mitsotakis, the prime minister, 
has been very, very popular since he was elected uh, two summers ago. He just won in, in July of 2019. He pulled Greece out of its economic depression. He revamped the taxation system. People are, are back to work. The stock market's doing well. The, the budget is balanced. Um, and then this, I mean, these fires, it's not like this is the first time there's ever been a fire in Greece. These things happen every single summer, and there's got to be a response. And he waited a full week before he finally asked other countries uh, to help. So now, like, for example, the United States has sent a, a water plane, you know, one of those planes that lands on water and scoops it up and then drops it on the fire. Uh, there are firefighters coming in from the European Union countries. Uh, Gutter has sent some ambulances. Other countries have sent fire engines. But hundreds of thousands of acres have burned Thousands of animals have perished. You know, people are losing flocks of sheep, flocks of goats. It's just devastating. Um, the uh, the the mostly the islands and the northern uh, the northern uh, agricultural areas of the country. What the heck was he thinking for eight days before he finally did something? This is a colossal disappointment to most Greeks to the point where. I could see this actually threatening the viability of the government. Wow. And I mean, I'm just curious, John, what is the plan for you all that have had to evacuate? I mean, do, do you know how long you all will have to be on these boats? Or, I mean, uh, is there something in place in terms of uh, you all being able to return? Or, or what is the situation there? Yeah, we decided not to return. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to a, a small coastal town uh, in Attica tomorrow. Um, once we're on the, the mainland, then we'll be able to get a get a cab. And I hate to say it, but just get to the airport and get out. Wow. Well, we hope that you all are OK there. John, really appreciate you joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Top of the hour, it is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., they can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on our heart 
iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Neffa Freeman, coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and the host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM. Neffa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. And, you know, Neffa, <laughs> I wanted to start today by uh, talking about your boy, Cory Booker. He he done messed around and went viral here, I think, with within the context of uh, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who passed an amendment basically aimed at withholding funds from localities who choose to defund the police. Uh, according to Tuberville, quote, local leaders across the country have decided the woke thing to do is to cancel their city's police force. So hitting all the buzzwords here, Tuberville. My amendment is pretty simple. If your city council wants to defund the police, don't expect the federal government to make up the difference. The American taxpayers in Alabama have to pick up the tab for local leaders in Oregon and Minnesota who value the woke defund the police movement over their own community safety. And uh, we actually have a clip of how uh, Cory Booker responded to this. And we're going to give that a listen, Neff, and I want to come back and get your thoughts. From New Jersey. I am so excited. This is perhaps the highlight of this long and painful and torturous night. This is a gift. If it wasn't complete abdication of Senate procedures and, and, and esteem, I would walk over there and hug my colleague from Alabama. And I will tell you right now, thank God, because there's some people who have said that they're members of this deliberative body that want to defund the police, to my horror. And now this senator has given us the gift that finally, once and for all, we can put to bed this scurrilous accusation that somebody in this great esteemed body would want to defund the police. So let all of us, 100 people, not walk, but sashay down there and vote for this amendment and put to rest the lies, and I am sure I will see no political ads attacking anybody here over to fund the police. And I would ask unanimous consent to add something else to this obvious bill. Can we add also that every senator here wants to defund the police, believes in God, country, and apple pie? Thank you. Yeah, so what a dweeb, dog. Like, seriously. Like, I, like, can this cat be any more of a dork? But, and you know, when I first heard this, Neffa, I was actually confused about what Cory Booker was trying to say. I mean, it was obvious he was being sarcastic, but when I thought about it some more, I realized the sarcasm, it's obviously aimed at to reveal, but in the context of, well, of course we don't support defunding the police. Why would we ever support that? Of course, we're all going to vote for this, which they did pass it 99 to zero. And uh, I don't know. It, it's pretty wild. I don't know why Booker felt the need to put on this song and, and dance uh, almost literally here uh, for this uh, Neffel. But 
I mean, you know, knowing what we know uh, about him and him, I think, still trying to seek to maybe uh, have some higher ambitions here as it pertains to U.S. politics. But, I mean, how was Booker's performance here striking you? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the whole thing in this context is it shows how detached all of these folks, not just Booker, but that whole, you know, the Democrats, you know, that, that uh, for some reason, have, not for some reason, we know why they have the electoral faith or, or uh, you know, of the of most black people and, everything, you know, a lot of the so-called progressives or just people in general, because they just people don't feel like they have any option. But it shows how much all of them are just caught up in their own little shenanigans that these chambers and what they're what they're debating, they these fake opposition, this fake uh, bipartisan you know, arguments are really just fake. And so his antics are really to, to act like, or his, you know, his little showboating was really just them, him full of himself. We've seen them do that before where they could stand, you know, they posture against the Republicans, but then actually the, the end result is how they're all, you know, in line uh, with the establishment politics, with the ruling class, with the oligarchy, the needs, the police and will not defund the police. It shows how detached they are from the from the movements on the ground, which they always they've been, you know, the Democrat Democratic Party and all of them are so uh, quick to tell people we need to, you know, do, you know, make good trouble. They always quote, what's the name, John uh, uh, Lewis? No, not, not Con- John Lewis. I'm sorry. Not, not John. And, you know, that good trouble thing. And we need to protest and do these things. Well, the protest is the protests from the ground uh, in the light of the George Floyd uprisings were calling for, a lot of them were calling for defund the police. Now we don't, you know, we can get into where that call comes from and what it ultimately really results or ultimately means. But the point is they're not responsive to it. It's like a slap in the face for every, to everyone who's been calling for any kind of reform uh, of the police or any kind of, uh, accountability or redress from police brutality and police extra, you know, impunity. Um, and so it's cries in the face of that. And so he said, God, he said, horror, you know, what horror it would be to defund the police. And in fact, while we know, and he utters, while he's uttering these things, we know that they're actually giving more money to police. Even this fake George, you know, police reform bill, uh, this insulting us by being called, named after George Floyd, the George Floyd Act, is actually giving more money to police in the name of trying to, you know, have training and all kind of, you know, craziness, um, which really is not getting at to the root cause and what the the role and function of this extension of the state is. You know, we have to remember it's the, this is an oligarchy. It's beholden to the rich and the wealthy, and the state is, you know, that's what it that's what it does. It serves their purpose. The police are an extension of the state, meant to keep us in line in a situation that is exacerbated by a pandemic, by, a, you know, what uh, the, our late brother Glenn Ford called, not to him, but the race to the bottom. And so as people become more desperate and everything, things going to happen, and they know they'll need the police to keep that in line. Even, and not just crime, they don't talk about crime, they're talking about uprisings, political mass action is what they're afraid of. Yeah, and and I have to admit, Netfa, that I, when I first heard this clip, I too was extremely confused because I, I think I was less confused about whether Cory Booker was being sarcastic or not because, I mean, I kind of dislike him so much that everything that comes out of his mouth just sounds terrible to me. 
So I was just not paying, you know, too much attention to that. But what was confusing to me was how confused the other members of the Senate were when they were sort of clapping and then they were kind of realizing, oh, wait, he's he's kind of trolling us. But but even in that regard, I mean, we're we're not talking about two real uh, different political parties in the Senate or in the House, you know, with the Republicans and and with the Democrats and certainly not on the issue of policing, because let's be clear about who Cory Booker is. He actually comes from a city where, you know, Newark, New Jersey has had a long history of police corruption and police abuse. And they supposedly had this uh, reform of the police department in Newark. But guess what's happening? That but black folks are still stopped more often by the Newark police than anybody else. So Cory Booker completely understands what defund the police means. And so do these Republican politicians, because, see, they understand what defund the Department of Education means. If they believe that the Department of Education produces, you know, bad curriculum and 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 indoctrinates children and it's inefficient, they believe in defunding, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development for inefficiency. But somehow they can't wrap their and and they're and they're not saying, well, in the case of the Department of Education, they were saying to get rid of it completely. But they understand that they're not saying when they say defund these other inefficient federal agencies to eliminate them, shut them down, close them completely. But somehow they can't figure that out with the police. And people like Cory Booker know that this is the game of semantics their Republican colleagues, so to speak, are playing because Booker goes right along with it, knowing full well that the reforms that have been paid for by all this extra money Two police departments in places like Newark in New Jersey, his home state, haven't done anything to improve relations between the community and the police, haven't improved the behavior of the cops, haven't done anything to improve anything. So for him to stand there on the floor of the Senate and, and try to be sarcastic and act as if he's trolling the Republicans or Tommy Tuberville, I guess, specifically for accusing Democrats of wanting to defund the police when he knows full well what people are demanding, calling for when they say that. I I just can't see a better example for people of why there is no reforming not only the police, but the Democratic Party, because you keep getting people like Cori Bush, who who, put a good face on it, but I mean, they can't... he he can't even walk the he can't even walk the talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you meant Cory Booker. Oh, sorry, Cory Booker. See, I'm I'm conflating my my political figurehead. Sorry. <laughs> right, but I mean I agree with you, and I think what also happens with all this. I mean, because I mean Cory Booker is like you know it's really a revolting individual when it comes to politics. I mean, yeah, but I mean I, if we're looking, if we sort of zoom out and actually re-examine what took place. Uh, behind all of the the fanfare that the media is giving it is that they unanimously voted for something that is it's a um it is how can we put it it's a it's the it's putting a um it's challenging the the, the local the state and city governments on the other end versus the people on one side not really the people I would, I would it's really more nuanced than to say 
the people on one side, but exactly, exactly, uh, more accurately, the movements, I suppose, the movements for uh, police accountability and, and against police brutality on one side, and then the federal government on the other. I said, if you give any inch to these folks on, you know, the, the movement folks on one side, and we're going to stand against you on this other side, on the federal government, because, you know, most people know that the, the police, um, their uh, their jurisdiction or, the, or their whatever is over them is the state and city and city governments. Right. That's who, who uh, governs them. But the federal government is now stepping in to say uh, with the, you know, in other words, this class this these legislators are stepping in unanimously to say do not give an inch to these folks, to anyone who are who is standing up against the police. And that, you know, they're showing where they're, you know, where their paychecks are butted on and that's the ruling class to say. And then they also the very strong uh I don't know if you want to call them but the police unions, these very strong and formidable formidable uh forces um that, you know, also uh can almost make him break somebody's political career. Not almost, but really can uh, when it comes to the, the federal, the uh, politicians. Anyway, I, I guess on any level. Not, and I don't really even think that there was too many. Some of the some of the cities we could see were feeling pressure from the movements to do certain things, even if they weren't really ready to do to actually really defund the police or, and definitely not abolish the police. They were feeling the pressure, and so now the federal government by this act is putting pressure on the opposite side, on the other side, and saying, don't give in to any of that. And that what we're seeing with this fanfare, media fanfare, is really a it's smokescreen for what actually took place with that vote. Yeah, and you know, I feel like it's worth noting here, Neff, but, you know, the, the deep connection between, particularly coming off of, you know, last summer, the rebellion around the race police killing of George Floyd, uh, when talking about defunding the police and, and these other measures against reigning in racist police terror is how deeply policing is connected to political repression. And the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, recently you all put out your um, 1033 monthly newsletter uh, around the uh, 1033 program, which uh, uh, helped uh, militarize police all across this country. They pointed out that in July 2020, uh, Joe Biden said, quote, surplus military equipment for law enforcement. They don't need that. But he never signed an executive order that the White House actually prepared for him at the start of the term that would have limited the 1033 program, not even ended it, but limited. You know what I mean? And there's just uh, a number of things here when when you have a look at it, because in reality, Biden, he could recall billions of dollars worth of military equipment that the police received for the Pentagon, but chooses not to. I mean, it's right up there with canceling student loan debt and canceling the rent and so many other things that are 100 percent within Joe Biden's power to do that he absolutely refuses to. And I think that that just helps to show the value that the police have to these uh, ruling class figures, be they Republican or Democrat. The police and the military, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I really can't add anything to that. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, that you know, as a movement, I think what's important for us to begin to do is to build uh, grassroots and organize, especially among the most impacted folks, um, organizing ourselves to control our own communities, every aspect of it, particularly public safety, so that we're in a better position to be able to say we don't need 
you know, police to come in to our communities, these occupied forces of occupation. This is a settler colony. This is in settler colonialism is a system. It's not just something, you know, well, it was established because some some Europeans came here from from Europe from uh, Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago, and now you know now this new nation, quote unquote, it's a system that operates at to have to uh, control and contain the indigenous population, the formerly enslaved Africans, uh, or formerly chattel enslaved Africans, and also in the working class in general, um, to make sure that capitalism, and particularly neoliberal capitalism, is intact and has it's there to, uh, to con- contain that. With this system comes um, one the frustrations and, and things that come from people being oppressed. That's the crime and different things like that that put the property in jeopardy and, and the order of things in jeopardy. But also the political discontent, the political formations that well, the resistance that always happens as a result of oppression. Wherever there's oppression, people bring resistance. Now they already know. Um, we know that they already know that they there's no way to um, to abolish a revolution. There's no way to abolish the resistance of the people. So what the best they can hope for is to contain it, not just with the police, but also counterinsurgency measures using the FBI and COINTELPRO type tactics, all those kind of things. We actually are seeing this is what we see when we see like Joe, uh, Joe Biden talking his talk and and the uh the legislators kneeling with kente cloth and all that kind of stuff. Um, these different things are really, and then also they, you know, do, do the same thing with the collaboration through big tech, which is trying to confine the area of, of debate and discourse around certain things. So they're trying to contain, this is about containing the movement, you know? Um, and so, you know, now, uh, and then you can see that not only can, with the algorithms, they can make it seem like we're, our reach is further than it is or confine our reach, they can actually ban people. You know, we know, ban organizations, <laughs> being able to, like, take organizations off off the off the social media, which really is, you know, we have to remember these aren't, social media is a contested area. I don't want to, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent from what you're talking about, but the, the social media and big tech a lot of people are dissatisfied with how it is uh, uh, censoring things in a lot of ways. But sometimes we confuse it and then get, we cheer it if it's Donald Trump, but don't realize the implications when it, come, when it comes down to us. But uh, almost also misunderstanding that social media are not beholden to uh, the ruling class or, or the state and beholden to the ruling class or sympathetic to it. It is. Those are the ruling class themselves. They actually have more say over the government than the government has over it if they if you know when it comes to the class interest and the fact that this is an oligarchy. But um we have to begin to make the linkages between the increasing uh, uh the shoring up of police and militarized police and the military and also uh, the control of ideas and the battle of ideas, and increasingly fascist. What we have is like what I think Daruba Ben called referred to as democratic fascism. Um, that you know, the oligarchy. There's democracy among them, but for the rest of us, it's just um, repression and farce and media uh, propaganda. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Nefa Freeman and Nefa, I know that you recently returned from a, a delegation trip to Nicaragua, a, a, a country that is uh, definitely one of many within the crosshairs of U.S. imperialism, certainly inside Latin America and uh, a country that is already facing, you know, bad press and things like this in the lead up to their uh, election here sometime in the coming Months And really, it seems as though the West is trying to delegitimize the uh, election before it even happens in a number of ways. And so, I mean, if you could, I was hoping you could sort of tell me about the delegation. What were, you know, its goals? What did you see? What was it like? And what is the reality from what you saw happening in Nicaragua as contrasted by what we hear so much here in the States? Well, it's a, it's a lot. We saw a lot. The delegation was hmm, about maybe eight people, maybe seven, and we were very pretty much there to um from uh coming from different countries, first one was from Brazil, um Bolivia, um the US with most of the people. And we were basically there to, to you know, be able to have some first hand account of things that are going on there, you know, when these kind of, when the U.S. and the media turn their crosshair, their eyes on another country, it's very important to be able to have some people who can, you know, counter that, you know, counter the propaganda and false information they're going to put out against it. Now, one of the things that you said about is they have an election coming up in November, and that the uh, the polls being taken of, of the people, Nicaraguans in the country, have shown over the years, over the years since 2006, a steady increase of support by the Sandinista government and Daniel Ortega, and and, um, and so they're trying to get a get ahead of that. So they actually have, and it, it really amazes me sometimes when we um, hear some of the propaganda around interference in U.S. elections and interference in the U.S unfounded, unsubstantiated stuff and then like all kind of really cloudy smoke and mirrors stuff, supposedly from Russia and sometimes China and all this, uh, that actually U.S. does this regularly and actually is, is puts it, um, codifies it in legislation. So one of the things that the U.S. Nicaragua is under sanctions by the United States. Um, of course, so many countries are under sanctions by the United States, but they are under sanctions by the United States, and they're also proposing an even uh, uh, stricter point sanction called uh, an act um, introduced by Senator Ben Cardin, one of these progressive Democratic senators, right? Um, and along and co-sponsored by, well, he actually sponsored, co-sponsored with a bunch of uh, Cuban Americans in, in Congress, and you know how, how they can be going to come to these, the, what Donald Trump termed the troika of tyranny, what the Biden administration seems to have picked right up on without missing a beat, uh, and taking that baton on, is the countries Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. I mean, we heard a lot about Cuba in the news recently. So this 
new act. Uh, it's called like Renacer. They're calling it Renacer's name. The acronym is Reinforcing Nicaragua's Adherence to Electoral Reform Act. Um, and so this is really, you know, some some really criminal and obscene stuff where they're going to dictate the terms of what how Nicaragua has its elections. And they want people to, they're trying to it put sanctions. They want to dissuade support for the S for the FSLN, the front for the, uh, I mean, English is something like the uh, Sandinista Front for National Liberation or something like that. Um, and so that was in, in English. And so now they're putting sanctions, you know, all these people, um, most of them, and this is how sanctions work. They call, they always talk, call them targeted sanctions. This is a almost another case study on target, targeted sanctions, they, as they call them, making people believe, well, they're not, you know, everyone's not affected by it. Only the the people who the desperate actors in a country are, are affected by it. But then you um, you can actually target, if you word it right, or if you put it right, you can target a half of a population or an entire population. So the, so when you entire, and you, when you put sanctions against, and this is what the act calls for, members of the F SLN and their family members, that is, you know, a very widespread, we're talking about 2 million card-carrying members of the SFLN, SFSLN, that's kind of a tongue twister there, because I mean, you know, so that's a lot of people. And then all the members of the police and the army, and they have specific members. Um, and so when people don't understand how uh, these other how other countries are organized and and where they're coming from, then they cannot really understand the pervasive impact of these sanctions. And when we were there, I'll just get into. I don't want to. It's kind of a long. I was there for two weeks. The delegation for was for the first week. From I just we got we got there a day before the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution in '79. Um, and we were there for the from the 18th to the or the 19th, 18th to the 25th, and then I stayed an extra five days to go to the Caribbean coast, the autonomous region, the autonomous region of indigenous and black people. Um, and that's something else to explain where the government has actually recognized through what's known as Law 28 the autonomy of the Caribbean coast, uh, unheard of. The before then, they were the the largely indigenous and black population there were, you know, imposed the, the, the Nicaraguan governments before like Samosa and them imposed um, themselves on this region that has its autonomy that goes way back to the 1700s. It's a long, or in terms of its ability to exercise an autonomous, you know, uh, culturally diverse uh, region all across the, you know, the Atlantic coast. Um, and this is also, anyway, it, it, it's all throughout Central America. There's this, these type, these populations, but in Nicaragua, they actually recognize the autonomous region and support the structural and infrastructural development of the region. And so that's, that's a revolutionary act. And so the black people in English speaking, but made it pretty much bilingual Spanish and English, but more pretty much English speaking. But then also they speak, there's some indigenous languages speak. There's the Garifuna people there that many people may have heard of in terms of Africans and they have their own language. All those are recognized and supported and through education and cultural exchanges and, and they all all this stuff is happening. So they're very supportive of the Sandinista government. So we're gonna hear some craziness soon 
just like they're trying to do with Cuba and make it seem like the African population is oppressed by the revolutionary Cuban government and they're against it. They're going to try to do that to uh, Nicaragua and maybe a little harder to do it there because they have, you know, there's the autonomous region that's supported by the government and they're actually making moves already to assert themselves and defend their country. But um, we were there. We we I went to the we went went to a lot of municipalities, not just in Managua. Uh, in 2018, people may remember uh, the news. The Western media was reporting an uprising in Nicaragua that was brutally put down by the Nicaraguan the Sandinista government. Um, we were actually able to visit that uh, region or that um, uh, province. Uh, Masaya was, it was not, it was several provinces, but the epicenter was the ground zero part of it was Masaya. And we were actually there able to hear testimony from people that were kid, ca- captured and tortured by, I mean, it was a terrorist spree really that was, that was supported by the U.S. government through USAID and National Endowment for Democracy. And, and they actually used, you know, marginal people, marginalized what they refer to as delinquents, marginalized people in the community who, you know, who, who live in desperate circumstances, who, you know, there's a, the revolution is new, so it's not like, and it's also not unfettered. So you can't just, you know, they're able to always take advantage of people who are living on the margins and get them to act uh, in ways that are counter to the revolution. And so what they were doing was really horrible. They they really, they killed a lot of people. People were burned alive. They were torturing people, burning up buildings, all kind of stuff. We were able to hear testimony from some people, like the security detail, the police officers who were the security detail of the mayor of Messiah, who were captured and tortured because they would not give up his whereabouts. They wanted to assassinate him. Um, one brother, you know, who gave the best uh, contextualized testimony, lost his arm. He was, um, they beat him up so badly and, and beat his, uh, destroyed his arm up so badly he had to have it, have it amputated. And he was there. And we, you know, we were able to hear, they took us around, they showed us the burned out, uh, you know, the things that were burned out, the, the vehicles and the buildings, some of which they're actually rebuilding. Um, very nice, you know, buildings and, and uh, facilities that they're building for the people. Um, what else? So we were able to hear about their uh, visit with the Ministry of Health in Estali. They talked about the healthcare system there, universal healthcare system, and how it's not just legislated that they have universal healthcare, but the efforts they're making to make sure it's accessible to everyone. Um, the the education system and how they are uh, uh, supporting efforts and projects for popular education for adult education and popular education. They've actually done a number of things in terms of almost abolished uh, illiteracy in the country. They've uh, reduced, you know, they've almost gotten rid of extreme poverty. I mean, these things are, are um, recognized by like the United, by United Nations bodies. Um, they, yeah, every universal healthcare, universal education, you know, the things that socialist countries do, and they're just trying to do more. Um, and but right now, the United States is trying to undermine all that. Um, yeah, and and there is a lot of news about Nicaragua in mm-hmm. mainstream U.S. press, and I think the context that you bring about what you saw over the past two weeks, Netfa, and you know the discussion about sanctions helps us contextualize that news because I'm looking at. A couple of headlines, one from The Washington Post that says democracy is under attack in Nicaragua and 
You know, they're talking about how the problem is Daniel Ortega uh, and his government. Uh, another, actually, it's another Washington Post article that says, From Rebel to Strongman, How Daniel Ortega Became the Thing He Fought Against. And there are questions about, you know, more than 30 opposition figures who were arrested in June uh, implicating, you know, Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo, who, you know, were leaders in Nicaragua's uh, Sandinista rebellion revolution, but now they're being painted as dictators and despots. So, I mean, what's the story? Are they being given in U.S. press the Nicolas Maduro treatment? Or is there something really problematic with the way they are governing in Nicaragua? This is the Nicolas Maduro treatment. This is the, you know, painting, you know, the dictator when they actually don't, you know, of course, not giving them how things operate in the country. Now, one of the this is the playbook the United States has, and this is what's happening in Nicaragua, it's happening in other places. And we, you know, when I mentioned agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development, this is the, you know, this is a U.S. government agency and the really, what's really the agency, but the is non-governmental, the National Endowment for Democracy. And these, these organizations do, and they've, they've even expressed it this way, the leaders of it, do overtly what the CIA used to do covertly. So when they go into a country and establish certain operations, they spring up a whole bunch of NGOs. The United States will fund these NGOs, so-called non-government, put out all kind of propaganda, do things to undermine the country, um, expressly things that are expressly against the government, against the Sandinistas. The United States would never, no country would allow, allow those kind of things to happen. It's called treason. And so when these when countries, and this is what Nicaragua has done, they've actually uh, created an act that is similar to what the United States has um, when you have to report uh, as in not, not outlawing organizations as, they, as you will, but making you have to report, disclose the your uh, affiliations with a foreign entity. And so it's called the. I can't remember what their act is called. I can't remember what it's called in the U.S. It's FACA, foreign agent. You have to register as a foreign agent is what it's called. And I mean, something like that. And so, and you have to, which means when you register as a foreign agent, you also have to um, show what funds you're getting from outside and also disclose how those funds are being used. So invariably with the United States, they'll, tag these funding, they'll fund these groups and say and say it's for one thing, but of course it's for some very illicit things on the ground in these countries. And so once it's disclosed or once the country, the government investigates and finds out about these things, then people are arrested, you know. And so once they're arrested, then the United States media says, look, they're cracking down on dissent. And, you know, this is how it happens in so many countries, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Um, and so, and not even just there. They've done it in Zimbabwe. I mean, this, these things happen in other places, too, because the governments have to, you know, figure out how, what best ways to defend themselves against this, this subversion. The United States doesn't have to worry about those kind of things because it's just one of those more very powerful countries that doesn't really, I mean, how, how can you do plus still, you know, they would just, we only have to be guilty of anything in the United States until lock us up. But um, that's the, the easiest explanation I can give to you. Um, and they've talked to us about some of the people that were uh, arrested and, and, and what they were arrested for. 
Um, and a lot of that is just really not complying with this new legislation, this new act that they put together to make people have to disclose how their what their relationships with are with the United States government in particular. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Nefa Freeman is here. And Nefa, you know, given uh, what you were able to see and experience in your time in Nicaragua, and I also know, you know, you've had uh, the opportunity to uh, go to Cuba on a number of occasions as well. And it's sort of like when you were explaining, you know, being in contact with uh, uh, black communities in Nicaragua and and, and uh, those black revolutionaries there. You know, it, to me, I think it shows how important it is for people who are involved in or at least interested in black liberation struggle to have this kind of internationalist, anti-imperialist scope to not only sort of see the reality of what's happening inside these countries targeted by the United States, uh, but also to sort of understand the synergy, if you will, perhaps I should say the common thread of the experience of African people wherever uh, we are on this earth, because it seems that no matter where we are, we tend to face uh, many of uh, the similar issues. And I think if we look at Nicaragua, if we look at Cuba, if we look at Venezuela, and we see how, uh, you know, all of those countries that I just named and a bunch more I could name have grappled with the histories of uh, colonialism, genocide, slavery. I mean, this is the story of an entire hemisphere, really. You know what I mean? And so these revolutionary processes, of course, are maligned by the racist powers of the world, you know, namely the United States and the uh, other major powers, of course, uh, Europe as well and some others. And so just being able to see the truth of that seems to me that it helps sort of bring into focus and helps us maintain a kind of clarity around our own struggle here in the United States, when you see how other African people are struggling around the world, what their involvement is like in these revolutionary processes and what the contradictions are and all these sorts of things. And, you know, I think that helps us see through the opportunism of uh, U.S. imperialism that is obviously really tokenizing, you know, black Cubans in this moment to try to make it seem like there's like a, a Black Lives Matter movement in Cuba against the revolution, which is simply not the case, despite the, the difficulties that do exist there on the island. And so, you know, within that frame, Nefa, and thinking about sort of black anti-imperialism really as a tradition and as a school of thought, I mean, how do you see that as important, particularly in a time such as this? Oh, um, it's a good question. Um so I uh, is very important. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to how to underscore it. Um, I think that you know, right now, it's very important because um, the 
the powers that be are increasingly, you know, using what my comrade Erica Keynes, I can't always use the, the term ever since she, she coined it, I suppose, is identity reductionism. Identity reductionism wants to take our, you know, our, our um, resistance and our movements for uh, African liberation or the liberation or, or the nationalism, so to speak, um, that we have to to wage to overcome the colonization aspects, but it wants to strip it of its class uh, class elements, class you know the significance of class struggle, um, and so making and reducing it so that we actually think that you know a success of people in high places of color or of not even just color but everything LGBTQ or anything that that signifies progress or that we can put our um, hopes you know in uh, a high high profile people that represent you know a particular identity that we have a group identity, and so identity reductionism. This is something that they're increasingly using right now. Um, and so when you hear, you know, the governments utter some kind of sympathy or, you know, fake disingenuous uh, remarks, gestures toward Black Lives Matter or things like that, then, you know, it, it can be confusing for people. Also, what you mentioned, it's relevant also to what you mentioned in terms of using because their they're, they're, uh, covert operations and their counter counter they're not really covert anymore. <laughs> they're over operations and they're counter insurgency like for in Cuba, um, they're trying to make it seem like there's this Black Lives Matter move and they have, you know, Afro Cubans, you know, uh, uh black Cubans, you know, uh in fact there was one article that was disparaging Black Alliance for Peace for our support to uh, to to uh to end the blockade and saying that we weren't, you know, we weren't either we don't weren't aware of the type of racism that's in Cuba and those kind of things. When these are people who are really just doing the behest of US government. They don't denounce US mechanisms in uh the Western Hemisphere. They don't talk about what the United States has done against Haiti. They won't take these kind of positions because these are folks that are really too close in bed with uh with the United States government. And so um so it's so when we have a international purview it helps us see through these types of things. I mean I've also been to Venezuela several times too, so it's almost like I keep going to these places the United States is hitting the trifecta. <laughs> the whole troika as it were. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Troika, right? So I you know, sometimes I come back in I'm like, what are they gonna say to me when I come back in here this time? Mm. And we got to go. And I think it's very important for us to actually even take more people and build these connections. Even if we don't, don't actually visit, now there's ways that we could actually have connections. Um, one of the things that statistics won't really uh, you know, tell in terms of how they talk about you know, is that when the being, being there or statistics can be, they tell things, but people can also say that they're false. They're like a poll. Like you could say, oh, this poll. Uh, the people overwhelmingly, you know, support the Sandinista government, and it's true. But then they always have something that's going, you know, cast some shit, some light on the pole. I mean, cast some doubt on the pole, right? But when you go there, I went out to Venice. Uh, I'm sorry, Nicaragua. This past, it was the 42nd anniversary of the Sandinista uh, Revolution, uh, um, or the Sandinista victory, right? And you know, it's it's almost like being. It wasn't quite like May Day in Cuba, which really is another telling thing. They, when you see these things, it's like, no, nah, nobody's forcing these folks to be out here. You know, now the reason why it wasn't like May Day in Cuba, though, because you know, is because of the pandemic, and they had to scale down intentionally to keep keep folks down. But in spite of that, you had a lot of people out there, people out there trying to 
you know, see and get close to Daniel Ortega and all that. And you, I could hear the addresses that, you know, you could, we could hear them speaking to the people and what they were saying and, and the cheers from the crowd and that kind of stuff. Those kind of things are unmistakable. You can't really say, well, these people don't really support this government when you see stuff like that. Um, and I think it's very important for us to have this international purview. And then also to talk to our people, um, like, for example, the Africans on the, I say African, black people on the Caribbean coast or Atlantic coast. And they actually have a lot of respect for the movements in the United States. They had questions about, um, like, for example, the, the mobilizations in response to the George George Floyd uprising and other mobilizations and just sort of wondering, you know, uh, why there's not a more, uh, like more progress, you know, and I had to, I was faced with having to try to explain that kind of thing. Um, and you know, which is, which is a good thing to have to do, I guess, to, to think through it. And, you know, the, the best thing I could say is that we haven't yet, uh, in other countries, you have to realize in other countries, when they mobilize, like if you look at Colombia, you know, and then even in Haiti, some of these groups there, and Haiti might be a little bit more complex, but the mobilizations are a lot more sophisticated. They're tied to protracted organizations. The demands that the folks have are much more um, shifting, power-shifting demands, you know, transformative demands, not transactional. And so here we kind of like there's a lot of mobilization, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where we're really strategically as a, as a you know, almost a united front of folks tactically getting to and strategically getting to where there's some a radical transformation, which is what's needed. It's too easy to be to co-opted by the powers that be just put, you know, a Kamala Harris or somebody in power and people start losing their minds and want to don't realize what the real nature of the struggle is and who the enemy is. Um, and so, but in, in other countries, they're a lot clearer. And so, you know, anyway, that was, that, that, but, uh, that was my, you know, that's, response I have to that. But yeah, we gotta we gotta get ourselves together here. And in fact other countries also have these questions about us because and other people in the countries because also the the bottom line of to to their issues, what's at the root of their um their inability to even realize a, a more a stronger like socialism and people's movement that adheres to all the needs of the people is the United States. And so they have those questions because they know, you know, that the United States is at the epicenter. It is the it is the biggest impediment to peace and security um and well being on the planet. And so people want to ask about, you know, they don't they don't make us and I don't blame the people for it. But they're, you know, kind of almost waiting for us to get ourselves together. Yeah. And, and I can see how, you know, the questions about Africans here on uh, this piece of land and the way we respond to the same type of oppression that, you know, Africans and other indigenous people are facing in these other countries are are facing can be real difficult to answer net for when we've got black public officials, you know, kind of bringing it back domestically like Cory Booker. And even on the local level here in D.C., I mean, I tried to have hope for Trayon White. I did. But I, I'm really seeing how that lack of international understanding that lack of international education and the understanding of him, imperialism and white supremacy and what the police state really is really affects our elected officials and especially young folks who want to get into politics. Because you tweeted in response to Trayon White's comment about 
uh, the three D.C. cops who were suspended after the video showing the man that they were attempting to arrest. They actually beat him up and repeatedly hit him during the arrest. The man was uh, eventually not charged. The three D.C. cops were charged. The D.C. police chief made a big old statement that really didn't make any difference. And of course, the D.C. mayor, Mayor Muriel Bowser. Interesting, Sean, another black person. Yep. What the heck? She says, well, yeah, I agree with the police chief, but the person that they beat up should have been charged. Trayon White's response was, we need more police accountability. Your response, your tweet, I cannot say the words that you said in the tweet, but Netfa, it is this lack of the understanding of imperialism, capitalism, the nature of the police state and white supremacy that causes these kinds of lackluster responses in so many young black folk who unfortunately are getting into politics, thinking they can change some things. And I mean, what do you say to people on the continent in other countries who are waging, you know, what you said, a a much more organized, protracted struggle that is centered around real concrete demands when the best we can come up with here is we need more police accountability? Um. I'm trying to find that tweet. It does sound like somebody was tweeted too. I remember him, you know, um, you know, talk, tweeting something like that, and, and um, actually he just tweeted something, you know, uh, earlier about I don't know the stuff that's happening in the community. I don't know what to say. One thing I think we we have to really one thing that the capitalist system does and the individualism of it is have it has people looking for individual saviors, looking for leaders, so to speak. And then it also has the people who want to see themselves and their vocation as leader as, you know, you know, thinking that they can define their own vocation. And we can't define our own vocation, quite frankly, not when it comes to the social justice. We really can't. If we, we have to actually be, uh, go through the, the, test of, of, of fortification within a movement, within an organization. And, and we have to study and we have to, you know, we have to debate things. We have to understand, like, like what you said, we have to have a political education that fortifies us with it. Otherwise, the system will only just co-opt us and use us. We won't even, people won't even know it. You know, so uh, all due respect to young brother Trayon White, which I, I believe he has a good interest, to the, you know, he means well but really can, doesn't have no clue about how this thing operates. You know, we, what is police accountability? The police are extension of the state. You know, the state, you know, it need. I mean, you just can't, if you're not calling for the people to be organized and organizing the people to take uh, justice into our own hands or take uh, power into our own hands, then we, you know, what are we talking about here? It's, it's, again, it leaves the, the, um, the people, the, uh, Agents, I don't know what to say, the people that are protecting the system, these politicians, the misleadership classes on the local level, too, uh, was the Conti, this Chief Conti and Mayor Bowser and all them. Um, it leaves them, you know, uh, as the, you know, the, the providers, the dispensers of, of, of justice and, and whatnot, when the people actually, uh, the condition we face is oppression. The, the, and the only way to, to change that, if we, if we lack self-determination, if we lack, you know, 
liberation, the only way, the only solution that, to that is for the people to be given self-determination, for us to be able to be organized to exercise uh, control over the institutions like the police, community control of the police, over the institutions like education and health care and those sort of things, the economy, the land, so we can talk about providing for ourselves um, because, you know, the the violence comes in out of desperation. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, uh, the violence does come from desperation. And what, you know, what is behind the desperation? It's people seeing their conditions worsen. Right. They're, they're living conditions worsen. I think particularly in this current moment that we're in, when people are in such a, a difficult position economically and we see, you know, the eviction moratorium ending soon in a couple of months and all these sorts of things. And so all of these different sort of uh, social and systemic issues sort of swirling around each other all at once. I mean, it's only natural that they explode in a certain way as they begin to converge. And these are ultimately the contradictions of the capitalist system. And it's interesting that for like, I, I can't imagine being in a position of being in another country and another person asking me, well, why does the movement in the United States sort of, uh, you know, why is X, Y, and Z basically, why is it playing out the way that it is? Because there's just like sort of so much that you could really get into with it. And, you know, when reading about, sort of other movements and revolutions, be it in Nicaragua or elsewhere. And Nicaragua has its own sort of uh, fascinating history. I really enjoy studying the uh, Sandinista revolution. You know, it's funny, you know, these things, these, these revolutions, these movements, they always emerge sort of under particular circumstances, right? And within their own particular context. And it's the same thing uh, in the United States. And so, you know, we don't necessarily know what uh, the future holds or what's going to happen in the coming years. Certainly there are some trends we could foresee on uh, the horizons. But what is clear is that both capitalism and imperialism are on shaky ground at this moment. And so as organizers, when we see that, I think we have to understand that as an opportunity to uh, build our movement and strengthen our movement to really strike at those vulnerabilities, get at the soft underbelly of these systems to where we can really uh, have an opportunity to make the kind of radical changes that we all know uh, is necessary. And see, this is why it's important to have this uh, kind of analysis and this kind of awareness, both of the domestic situation and of the international situation. Because if you don't have that internationalist scope, you may think that's what's happening to you is just like an accident. You know what I mean? Or just uh, something that's your particular experience. But when you connect that to what's happening worldwide, then you get a clear picture. Where we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Neffa Freeman, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.